Becky was a clerk at the local Christian bookstore, and she enjoyed chit-chatting with her customers. One day, she was speaking to a local pastor when she complimented him on the wonderful church that he led. Becky blurted out, Oh, Pastor Tom, I just love your body. Oops. She was speaking of the body of Christ, but that's not how it was heard by everyone else in the store. It made for an embarrassing moment. The New Testament uses numerous idioms for the church. We are God's fellow workers, God's field, God's building, the bride of Christ, the flock of God, the household of faith, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the candlestick, the pillar and ground of the truth. And all these pictures sharpen our view of the church. But of all the idioms used in Scripture for the church, none is quite as illuminating as the one that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For here he speaks of the church as a body. Together, you and I, we are the body of Christ. At his incarnation, Jesus clothed himself in a human body, in flesh and bone, to touch and heal and help and to reveal God to a lost world. Today, Jesus carries on that work through another body, His church. Just as your spirit and mind interact with your surroundings through your body, likewise, the church is the means by which Jesus reaches out to a needy world. We are the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us that the Spirit of Christ works through the body of Christ. Our job is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and not hinder His work. I hope people look at our church and then make the remark, Lord, I just love your body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul spends the first 11 verses encouraging us to use our gift, our spiritual gifts. But then he speaks to us in verses 12 through 31 and instructs us to find our place. Remember verse 7 tells us, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. The smorgasbord of spiritual gifts that Paul says are on the Christian's table aren't there for his or her own benefit. Rather, the gifts are given for the profit of all. You're here to bless me. I'm here to bless you. Every Christian's usefulness for God, as well as our own personal fulfillment, is directly connected to the body of Christ. If you and I want to live out our purpose in life, it's vital that we use our gifts, but then that we also find our place. Verse 12 begins, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many, are one body, so also is Christ. If you're an adult of average weight and height, here's what you will accomplish every 24 hours. Your heart beats 103,689 times. Your blood travels 168 million miles. Your lungs breathe 23,040 times and inhale 438 cubic feet of air. You eat three and a half pounds of food. Some of us more, 
a few of us less. You drink 2.9 quarts of liquid and expel seven-eighths of a pound of waste. Your vocal cords utter 4,800 words. You move 750 muscles. Your nails grow .000046 inches. And your hair, if you still have any, grows .017 inches. And to top it all off, you use 7 million brain cells. No wonder you feel exhausted at the end of a day. The human body is a miracle of engineering. It consists of several trillion cells and 10 major organs working in precise synchronization with one another. Your body is a blend of unity and diversity. And so is Jesus' body. We are many members, but we are one body. Look around at the people in this room this morning. We're different folks from divergent backgrounds with varied gifts and diverse callings. And God has put us together in this one place at this one time to be one people, to be His body. And God expects us to function like a body, to work in harmony with one another, to build each other up. Paul begins his analogy of the church as the body of Christ by noting our common spiritual starting point. Verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. We've all slaked our thirst from the same spigot. You and I share and enjoy the same spiritual watering hole. We've been baptized into Christ. And now we drink of the life of Christ, the living water, by the same spirit. Though the body of Christ might be organized, we are certainly not an organization. We're more than that. We're an organism. The body has structure, but a mere structure it's not. We're growing and changing and adapting. Though involuntary systems operate within my body, I'm more than a machine. I'm a mind. I have a will. I have emotions. I have a soul and a spirit, and so does the body of Christ. You and I together are alive. We are the people of God filled with the life of God. A.W. Tozer once remarked, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life. When we give our lives to Jesus, He gives His life to us. Just as I might slip my hand into a limp, lifeless glove, God slips His Holy Spirit into my spirit. I'm animated with the life of God by the presence of His Holy Spirit. And the same Spirit who lives in me lives in you. This inseparably links us together. We are now and forever connected spiritually through the Holy Spirit. This means just as my four kids can look at each other and say, Wow, my blood runs through them. Likewise, you and I should be able to look at each other as spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ and think, hey, we have been born of the same spirit. We may be male and female, blue collar and white collar, dark skin and light skin, tech and Georgia, 
old and young, trendy and traditional, Jew and Gentile, but there is a connection between us that transcends the differences that might exist. We have been baptized or initiated into the life of God by the same Holy Spirit. Now, while we're addressing verse 13, here's an opportunity to clear up some doctrinal confusion. Non-Pentecostals point out from verse 13 that spirit baptism is used synonymously with conversion, and they are right. But then they conclude that spirit baptism always speaks of Christian conversion, and it doesn't. You see, the term baptism in the Scripture is like the English word watch. It has multiple meanings. I can be wearing a watch. I can be standing a watch. Two words, two different meanings. And likewise, baptism has multiple meanings. It can mean to initiate or to make part of. Like when a rookie quarterback gets sacked for the first time, we say, well, he got his baptism. He was initiated into the action. Or baptism can mean to engulf or to immerse, as in a water baptism. He was submerged in the river or baptized. Well, now, in the New Testament, whenever Paul uses the term baptism, it does refer to our Christian conversion. You remember Romans chapter 6 says that by faith we've been baptized into Christ. We're united spiritually into the life of Jesus. And now we share in all that He is and all that He's accomplished. But that's Paul. When John or Luke or Peter or Jesus use the term baptism, they're speaking not of conversion but of immersion. In Acts chapter 2, Luke writes of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, that moment in time when he, God gives us His boldness, and He calls it being baptized in the Spirit. It's the same word, but it's a different experience. With any text, the correct interpretation is dependent on the context. And so whether the New Testament intends for the baptism of the Spirit to mean our salvation or our saturation depends on the author's intent at the time. And here, when Paul says that we've been baptized into one body, he's referring to our initiation into Christ, our salvation. There are some churches that you join by coming forward, or maybe by applying for membership. But understand, you join the church the moment you trust your life to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit quickens God's life in your heart. This kind of spirit baptism is like a merger. When I came to Jesus, it was like a smaller company getting gobbled up by a huge corporation. The smaller outfit still does business. That's me. But now I got big partners. I'm under new management. I have a new mission. I have new and better resources. See, here's how every member of the body of Christ should see themselves. We're no longer a mom and pop. We're now subsidiaries in God's kingdom. And the next 14 verses, verses 14 to 27, Paul describes this interconnectedness in the body of Christ. Verse 14 begins, For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. The church is one body. We're united 
But that one body is made up of many members. The church is a blend of both unity and diversity. Now realize the emphasis on the church as a body, as an integrated whole. This was revolutionary to the ancients. When you visit the ruins of Corinth, which we have, a must-see is the archaeological museum. There is an exhibit there of terracotta or clay-baked figurines that are fashioned as body parts. In the display case, you'll find legs and hands and eyes and ears, female breasts, genitalia, even internal organs. You see, the city of Corinth had a temple dedicated to the pagan god Asclepius, the Greek god of healing. So when a person became ill, they made a replica of the diseased or broken body part, and they offered it as a sacrifice to Asclepius in hopes of his healing. Thousands of such body parts have been found in the ruins of the ancient city. Now this is all strange to us, but it was in keeping with notions of healing in the ancient world. You see, body parts were considered isolated, separated from one another. If an organ or an appendage was diseased, then it was assumed that the ailment was confined to that particular part. Few folks understood the interconnectedness of the human body. The pagans isolated the body's members instead of viewing the body's health holistically. In contrast, Paul believed in a creator, a designer, whose imprint is left on all that he touches, even our bodies. God made us one body, but with multiple members. And the success and health of our bodies are determined by the cooperation and interrelatedness of its members. To which Paul asks in verse 14, If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? See, the body works best when each member knows its place and accepts its role. If your foot got tired of being out there on the end of your leg and started grumbling with your toes, man, it's hot and smelly, stuck in that sock all day, and I have to bear the weight of the whole body. I'm so tired of getting treated like a heel. My soul is so weary. I'm always the one towing the line around here. My only friend is Dr. Scholes. I keep putting my best foot forward and nobody ever notices me. I've had enough. I'm putting my foot down from now on. People even think I'm corny. I feel so defeated. This could go on and on. Or imagine your ear complaining. I'm tired of getting waxed all the time. If somebody sticks one more needle in me, I'm out of here. Out of here. Out of here. Hey, what if the members of your body got tired of playing their role and became resentful, even started competing with each other? You would become incapacitated. Not much would ever get accomplished. And the same is true in the body of Christ. 
If everyone refuses to cooperate with each other, the church is going to be useless and fruitless. See, one of the problems in the church that hinders our harmony is our failure to accept our place. Either we get restless ourselves or we get jealous of someone else's calling. We refuse to embrace God's will for our lives. God calls us to be a foot, and yet we want to be a hand. Because I'm stuck being an ear, and I'd rather be an eye, I'll just take my shades and lashes and go home. Sadly, too many Christians are poor followers. In fact, the the term follower has almost become a dirty word in our culture. Oh, you should be a leader, not a follower. There's something wrong with you if you're a follower. But that's not true, especially for a Christian. As Christians, we're called to follow Jesus. And part of that following is knowing our place in the body of Christ and then having the humility to be content with our role. Being an ear isn't as glamorous as being an eye. I mean, think about it. Your eyes sit in the middle of your face. It's the first thing a person notices. Whereas your ears sort of hang out on the periphery out there, on the side of your head. Often they get hidden under your hair. Eyes get far more attention than do ears. Same with your hands. We shake hands, not shake feet. We even talk with our hands. We hide our ugly feet in a pair of shoes. We wave to each other with our hands, not our feet. Who wants to be a foot? I demand to be a hand. And this is the problem in the church. Everyone wants the glamour positions without realizing that every post in the body of Christ is strategic. Every member, all the roles, should be honored and respected. Your body doesn't need a dozen eyes or 50 hands. The eye needs an ear. And that hand, it needs a foot. At church, we need to leave our agendas at the doors. Church is not about any one of us individually but the whole of us together. No member should expect or serve or give on his or her own terms. We need to accept our place. And whatever you're calling, trust me, there is no more satisfying a feeling in the world than finding your place in the body of Christ, of fulfilling your role, your God-given purpose. On a baseball team, it's the manager's job to put players in positions that will best help the team. And in the body of Christ, the Holy Spirit is the manager. If you follow Him, He will help you find your place. Well, verse 17 tells us, If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? Here Paul paints what I think is a grotesque image. What if your whole body was an eye? I mean, what if your body was this big eyeball rolling around. You'd be sad. You'd be blue. You might look good over a rosy cheek or next door to a nose, but on your own by yourself without a face, you're out of place. If you're an eye, you can see, but if you have no feet or hands or legs or arms, you're not going to go anywhere. You're not going to do anything. And I'm afraid that's what becomes of many churches. They turn into one big 
I. I want this, or I deserve that. Some churches suffer from I strain. We need to be led by the Holy Spirit, not our own ego. And if the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? If we were all an ear, how would we smell? You don't listen to a rose. A rose is silent. Oh, but it produces a fragrance that you don't want to miss. That's why an ear needs a nose. You know, if I told you, if we told our little league baseball team that everyone could play whatever positions they wanted, we'd end up with 10 pitchers and maybe one shortstop. There'd be no outfielders and certainly no catchers. Everybody wants to play the prestigious positions, and you'd have a lousy team. And the same is true in the body of Christ. You and I are most beautiful in a body, we find our function. In a family, you see, an eye has a socket, a nose has a bridge, a hand works best out on the end of an arm, and a Christian functions best when attached to the body of Christ. And this is why Paul says in verse 18, but now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body. Again, the body of Christ is a blend of unity and diversity. And to, distress, and to stress one above the other is a mistake. You see, we need a healthy balance of both. Our diversity should never infringe on our unity. And our unity should never nullify our diversity. We need to be a blend. Twenty years ago now, a group of Scottish scientists, they cloned the first mammal. It was held as a breakthrough in genetics. The cloned sheep was named Dolly. I recall reading the article and thinking to myself, that's no big deal. Churches have been cloning sheep for a long time now. Often the church will strip people of their individuality in the name of discipleship. We want to conform them but not to the image of Christ, into our own image. Here's a poem for you. Be what I want, no more, no less, because I am right and no one else. Think what I think, do only what I do, then and only then can I fellowship with you. That's an attitude that the church needs to avoid. Hey, if you're a senior citizen, don't try to act like a young person just because your pastor's such a young guy. If you like country music, then like country music. If you're from Nigeria, celebrate your culture. It's beautiful. If you're well-to-do financially, don't try to act poor. If you're poor, certainly don't pretend to be rich. If you like NASCAR, then like NASCAR. If you're a biker, be a biker. Be who you are. It is our diversity that gives the body of Christ its richness and its beauty and its texture. God wants us all to be genuine. Each of us are uniquely fashioned by God. And if we're true to who He has made us, we'll maintain our diversity. Yet, on the other hand, if we overstress our diversity, it can hinder our unity. 
At times, the health of the body needs me to to express my individuality, but at other times, the health of the body is best served by me suppressing my individuality. There are Christians who never settle in. They never become a part of the church because they're unwilling to swap their own personal agenda for the good of the group. They insist on their own thing, and they miss out on a God thing. You see, unity and diversity are balanced by maturity. Remember verse 7, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for the profit of all. And this should be our motivation when it comes to all our interactions in the church. Verse 21 says it best, And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Each of us has our place. We need each other. As Christians, God knows that we are better for Him together than we can be apart. One day, the ship's captain and chief engineer were arguing over whose job was most vital. They decided to swap places to prove their point. Well, the engineer went to the bridge, while the captain, he headed to the engine room. An hour later, the captain appeared back on deck. He was covered with oil and grease. He was waving his monkey wrench, shouting, Chief, we need you down here. I can't get this ship to go. Well, the engineer shouted back, Of course you can't get the ship to go. I just ran her aground. Both men needed each other. You have gifts that can bless and benefit me. I have gifts that will bless and benefit you. We should recognize that we need each other. At the close of World War II, Jimmy Durante was invited by Ed Sullivan to a veterans hospital to entertain some wounded soldiers. Well, Durante said that he had a radio show scheduled for that night, but he would try to squeeze in a short routine. Sullivan was shocked that Jimmy's short routine turned into several hours. Later, Sullivan asked him why he'd stayed so long. Durante pointed to two soldiers sitting side by side on the front row. Both had lost their arm in battle, and they did their clapping by putting their two remaining hands together. It so moved Jimmy Durante that he just couldn't leave. And this is what moves the Spirit of God to move upon us. Spiritually speaking, we are all disabled in some way. But where you're weak, I can make you strong. And where I'm weak, you can help me. God wants us all to see that we're better for Him together than we can be apart. Verse 22 tells us, No, much rather... Those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. I'll give you an example. In your body, there is a tiny valve that acts as a lid to your stomach. When that valve softens and weakens, stomach acids float back up into your esophagus. The result is called esophageal reflux, or in layman's terms, major league heartburn. And speaking from personal experience, this is no laughing matter. It amazes me that too much pizza 
And the weakening of one little tiny flap of flesh can create intense pain. It's a reminder that every part of the body plays a pivotal role. In the body of Christ, you may be a tiny valve, but if you don't do your part, the whole church suffers. Every part of the body is important. There are parts of the human body like the stomach valve that serve, but they're never seen. No one thinks of these parts until there's a problem. Ever had a hangnail? And this is also true in the church. If a nursery worker fails to show up, or the sound man sleeps in, or the ushers miss a week, suddenly everybody realizes how vital their role happens to be. See, some might say, the pastor has the glamour job. I get to stand here and teach God's Word week to week. But if everyone else in the church doesn't do their job, I'll never get to do mine. I'm just one of many members. Verse 23 encourages us to make sure that folks behind the scenes don't have to break down to be appreciated. In fact, the church needs to go out of the way to honor those members who tend to end up getting overlooked. He says, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. In essence, the service I perform is obvious, but not so for the people who are behind the scenes. A pastor gets recognized. And like anybody else, man, I appreciate being appreciated. But Paul teaches us that our deliberate shows of gratitude need to be reserved for the unseen members who never get recognized. He says in verse 24, But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. Division in the body of Christ is less likely if thanks and attention is divided equally among all the members. But not only should we share in the care, we should also help shoulder the suffering. He says, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If I'm working outside and I accidentally pound my thumb with a hammer, oh my. It won't just be that my thumb swells. No, my whole body will begin to throb. When one member hurts, all the body hurts. And just as the members of the human body are interrelated in this way, so is the body of Christ. I've heard it said, real fellowship doubles our joys and divides our griefs. The church ought to be praying for each other or rejoicing with each other, sharing in both our pains and our joys, living life side by side with each other. Did you hear about this big controversy that came down at the Church of the Hand Tools? I mean, this was a real Donnybrook. Some of the members there complained about Brother Hammer. Man, you're too forceful. You're always pounding home your points and nailing the rest of us. Hammer, he pointed to Brother Screwdriver. Hey, I'm no worse than him. He just keeps spinning around in circles. This angered the screwdriver. He said, well, what about Brother Plain? All his work is on the surface. He's got no real depth. Brother Plain, he shouted at Brother Tape Measure. You're so judgmental. You're always measuring people up, just sizing them up. 
You always think you're right. Brother Tape Measure, he then turned around and he snapped angrily at his brother's sandpaper. He says, well, look at you. You're so rough and gritty. You're always rubbing people the wrong way. Why don't you all just go back into the toolbox? That's when the master carpenter arrived. Jesus put on his carpenter's apron and he went to work building a pulpit from which the Word of God could be preached. He used the hammer and the screwdriver and the plane and the tape measure and the sandpaper and all the tools, each in just the right way and at just the right time. Finally, Brother Saul, he saw it. He rose up and he informed the others. Brothers were all tools of equal importance in the hands of the Master. And so are we. All tools of equal importance. Verse 27 tells us, Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, variety of tongues. Now early in the chapter, verses 8 through 10, Paul provided us a list of spiritual gifts or manifestations of the Spirit. We discussed nine gifts last week. If you weren't here, you should get the CD or go on the website and check it out. Here, though, Paul mentions two additional gifts, helps and administrations. And so let me briefly summarize these two spiritual gifts. The gift of helps is a supernatural knack for assisting folks without making them feel like you're taking over. You ever had anybody that wanted to help you, but they did so in a way that sort of highlighted your inadequacy and their competency? I mean, it was all a little bit more discouraging than it was empowering. Well, a person with this gift, the gift of helps, he has the ability to enable a person and to bring out the best in that person, to empower them. This is a wonderful gift in the body of Christ. Helps is a big help. The gift of administrations is also a valuable gift. This is the ability to organize and to manage ministry. Business mogul Andrew Carnegie used to brag, take away our factories, our trade, our avenues of transportation, our money. Leave us with nothing but our organization, and in four years we can reestablish ourselves. Organization is a powerful force, and spirit-led mobilization is a needed tool in the body of Christ. I think seldom does a church need more organization, but I believe every church could use better organization. It's been said we need people with the courage to dream the ability to organize, and the faith to execute. But after listing these spiritual gifts, Paul goes back to his main point, that success in the body, even our own personal fulfillment, depends on our using our gift and finding our place. Each of us has a unique role. Paul asks a few rhetorical questions in verse 29. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? He's emphasizing the diversity among the body. Each of us has different spiritual callings and gifts. Not everyone is an apostle or a teacher or has a gift of healing. 
Use your, your gift. Be content in your place. The most frustrating experience in the world is trying to be something that you're not. Try to step into someone else's calling or mimic their gift, and you're destined for misery. No, find your place. Use your gift. And when each of us is faithful to do so, God bountifully blesses us both individually and corporately. Now notice Paul's last two rhetorical questions. He says, do all speak with tongues? And do all interpret? And the obvious answer is the same answer to the previous five questions, which was no. We all have different gifts, and nobody has all the gifts. God gives us the gifts that He wants us to have. And this is why I don't agree with some Pentecostals who say that every believer who's filled with the Holy Spirit will speak in tongues. In, Acts chapter, I mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to discuss the gift of tongues and interpretation. For now, let me just say, it's a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful way to praise God or pray to God. Every Christian should be open to speaking in tongues, but Paul is crystal clear, not everyone will. In fact, in some circles, the gift of tongues is sort of worn like a badge of honor. It separates the spiritual haves from the have-nots. If you don't speak in tongues, you're treated as inferior in some way. That is both sad and unbiblical. Not everyone will speak in tongues. We're going to learn in chapter 14 that the gift of tongues is actually the least of the spiritual gifts. Paul says in the last verse, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And of course, this begs the question, what are the best gifts? And here's my answer. I believe the best gift is whatever I need at the time. If I need some more information to make a decision, then the best gift is the word of knowledge. To sort out all of my options, I might need a word of wisdom or gift of discernment. If I'm afraid, then I need the gift of faith. If I'm sick, the best gift would be a gift of healing. Yet there's one commodity even more important than spiritual gifts. Chapter 12 concludes, And yet I show you a more excellent way. And this sets the stage for chapter 13, where Paul identifies the more excellent way as the gift of love. Sandwiched between these two great chapters on spiritual gifts is the love chapter, for the greatest gift is love. Here's the surest way to know you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you love people? Especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's going to tell us, you can speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if you lack love, you're just a clanging symbol. Next week, we'll look at love.